Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to Pax Britannica. My name is Wesley Livesey, the host of the History of the Second World War podcast. The topic and its relation to the history of the British Empire needs no introduction. If the First World War was the end of Pax Britannica, the Second would leave the Empire in tatters. My podcast covers the story of the Second World War in, mostly, chronological order. That means we will be spending more time than perhaps expected on the events before 1939, because to understand the war itself, it is critical to understand how the nations of the world were plunged into a war just 20 years after the Great War ended. It is a story of diplomatic maneuvering, violent conflict, and of course radical political movements, as the world slid seemingly inexorably towards devastation. If you would like to find out more, you can find History of the Second World War on all major podcasting platforms, or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. I now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, mostly because I want to listen to this episode as well. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Bonus episode. The Prehistory of Maryland. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. This week, we have a guest episode from Jared Books. Jared is the host of A History of Maryland podcast. This is the reason I haven't really talked about Maryland at all in the main podcast. Jared has been very kindly working on this episode for me, and the result is just a brilliant episode. So I will now leave you in Jared's capable hands. Remember, if you'd like to hear more, you can find A History of Maryland on all good podcast apps. Hello, everybody. My name is Jared Books. And I'm the host of a History of Maryland podcast. And if you haven't figured it out yet, this is one of them there guest episodes of Pax Britannica. Today, we'll be discussing the foundation of a tiny little sliver of the British Empire known as the province of Maryland. When it comes to American colonial histories, the story of Maryland tends to get blared out by its bigger, louder neighbors, Virginia and the various New England colonies. Later, Pennsylvania, New York, and the Carolinas will get top billing. We're perpetually flying under the radar of popular history and often overlooked and ignored. For instance, Maryland's role in the American Revolution was specifically snubbed, not once, but twice, by Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. And those wounds run deep. But thankfully, Samuel Hume and Pax Britannica have decided to be part of the solution, and have graciously allowed me some time to begin the story of our little colony before passing the baton on to Sam's much more capable hands. But in case you've never even heard of the place, the current state of Maryland is nestled along the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, smack dab in the center of the mid-Atlantic coast of the United States. We are mostly famous for our blue crabs, a few moderately decent sports franchises, 
and at least two critically acclaimed cable dramas about murder and heroin. When it comes to our early colonial history, if you know anything about the Maryland colony, you probably know it as the Catholic one. Maryland was a rare beacon of toleration and refuge for English Catholics, fleeing from repression at home. As such, the Maryland story tends to be framed as a low-budget reboot of the Pilgrim story for a Catholic audience. But forget all that. This isn't going to be the Pilgrims 2 a Catholic boogaloo. The real story is much more complicated, chaotic, weird, and hopefully for you, much more interesting. The origin story for the colony of Maryland is really the story of one man, his political rise and fall, and the string of properties he'd accrue from Yorkshire to Ireland to Newfoundland to Maryland. His name is Sir George Calvert, and while he's but a minnow in the great sea of British historical figures, and he's virtually invisible in most histories that aren't specifically about him, he's also one of those guys who always seems to be milling around in the background of most of the major political events of his lifetime. If you've listened to the entire Pax Britannica series so far, you have all the context you need, because Calvert's been there all along. And it's only left to me to weave him into the broader history that Sam has already regaled you with. George Calvert was born in 1580, at the height of Elizabeth's reign, in northern Yorkshire, his family being gentry of the lesser variety. North Yorkshire had a reputation for being a hotbed of recusancy in crypto-Catholicism, and the Calvert family would fully live up to that reputation. Throughout George's childhood, his father, his mother, and later his stepmother would be in and out of trouble with the authorities for their popish persuasions. Eventually, his father would be forced to conform with the Church of England, and the Calvert children would be forced to have a Protestant tutor and receive occasional visits from government agents who'd make sure the kids weren't straying from the righteous path. From this point on, until his open conversion to Catholicism in late 1624, early 1625, Sir George Calvert was a conforming member of the Church of England. There's plenty of historical debate as to just how much he was conforming in his own heart and mind, or when he was out of the public eye, but throughout his college years and his entire political career, he was by all outward appearances a Protestant. He would have to be. Catholics at this time were not able to graduate from university or hold public office in England. Calvert would attend Trinity College, Oxford, specializing in languages, notably Latin and presumably one or more of the Romance languages, and he would study law at Lincoln's Inn, graduating sometime around 1601. Around 1603, the same year King James VI of Scotland becomes King James I of England, Calvert's metaphorical ship would come in big time. There are many versions of what happens next, but it, it seems like Calvert was bumming around Europe after graduation, as you do, when a family connection or friend writes him to see if he could pick up some diplomatic correspondence from the French court and deliver it back to England. Calvert manages to do this without screwing it up, and these letters would be destined for the desk of one Robert Cecil, whom Pax Britannica fans should know well as Secretary of State and Spymaster for both Elizabeth and James, and who will soon become Lord Treasurer, the first Earl of Salisbury, and a whole host of other things. In short, Calvert just got his foot in the door with the second most powerful man in the kingdom. Well, Cecil seemed to have liked the cut of Calvert's jib, and for the next eight years or so, with Cecil's patronage, George Calvert would accrue jobs, titles, and the odd reversion to an Irish sinecure that would steadily raise him out of his lesser gentry obscurity and bring him closer and closer to the heart of political power in the Kingdom of England. Now, George Calvert was never a big-name, policy-making shot-caller. He never comes close to the political stature of a Warwick or a Pembroke or a Buckingham. He was a clerk, a secretary, a messenger, an observer, and a diplomat. He's the guy getting things signed, sealed, and delivered, climbing the ladder of clerical court positions like Clerk of the Signet in 1609 and Clerk of the Privy Council in 1610. What he offered his patron and his king in return was an unquestioned loyalty, competence, and discretion at any task he was assigned. He comes off as trustworthy, careful, mild-mannered, and well-spoken. Even his political opponents didn't have anything too harsh to say about him partly because he didn't try to stand out or burn any bridges. It's best to think of Calvert at this time as just a diligent little worker bee buzzing around rooms full of very powerful men, and as a reliable cog in the bureaucratic machinery of court. It all sounds a bit boring, I know, but stick with me, because what this did grant him was an enormous amount of access to the king, and in this era, personal relationships and patronage greased the wheels of government. 
This access to the king and his ability to get things done in return for a favor or a gift was a very marketable skill indeed. After the death of Robert Cecil in 1612, the power vacuum would be filled by a series of court favorites, all of whom had a much more chilly attitude towards Calvert. But this time, Calvert's upward trajectory would be facilitated by King James himself. The king began utilizing Calvert as a messenger and a loyal pair of eyes and ears throughout the three kingdoms and beyond. In 1613, Calvert would be part of a five-man commission sent by the king to Dublin in order to investigate election fraud, redivide the sheeted lands in County Wexford, and to report on the condition of the state church in Ireland, all in an attempt to get Catholic Irish butts back on Parliament seats after they had staged a walkout several months earlier. In 1615, when James needed someone with a delicate touch to personally visit his daughter Elizabeth over in Germany and let her know just how pissed off he was that she had given away some of the Stuarts' prized family jewels, he chose Calvert. One 19th century source even claims that Calvert acted as the bagman when it came time to seize all of Sir Walter Raleigh's books and navigational charts just before the disgraced sea dog lost his head, though I can't seem to corroborate that anywhere else. Anyway, by 1617, years of faithful service would get Calvert knighted, so we can call him Sir George Calvert after this point. And more and more, he would find himself employed in the translation, composition, and transaction of foreign correspondence. And more and more, the subject of this correspondence would be the Spanish match, the proposed marriage between Prince Charles of England and the Infanta, or Princess of Spain, Maria Anna. Calvert would hitch his political star almost entirely to the success or failure of this pro-Spanish policy. Between the years 1619 and 1623, it will help take him to the heights of his political success. Around this time, he joins the King's Privy Council as a full-fledged member, not just a clerk. And in 1619, to everyone's surprise, especially Calvert's, he's made Secretary of State. George Villiers, soon to be the Duke of Buckingham, is already the king's favorite and the primary dispenser of patronage in England. So Calvert naturally thought Buckingham had something to do with his appointment. And as a show of thanks, Calvert would give Buckingham the gift of a jewel. And Buckingham would promptly give it back. He had nothing to do with Calvert's promotion, and he'd hint darkly that maybe Calvert was just being set up as a fall guy to take the political bullet if the match didn't work out. The office of Secretary of State was no longer the all-powerful position it had been during the days of William and Robert Cecil. Calvert even had to share the office with two successive Buckingham appointees, first Sir Robert Naughton and later Sir Edward Conway, guys who'd enjoy the power and the prestige of the office while Calvert handled the grunt work and the administrative end of the job. In many ways, he was literally the Secretary of State, but he'd reached the peak of his powers at this time. As you all know, we can't talk about the Spanish match without talking about how wildly unpopular it was amongst most patriotic Protestant Englishmen, and it would fuel a growing list of grievances that would find expression in the fateful Parliament of 1621. King James wanted Calvert to gain a seat in the Commons to try and dilute opposition. To accomplish this, Calvert would seek the help of one of his neighbors in winning a parliamentary election in the contentious, bare-knuckle world of Yorkshire politics. This man's name was Thomas Wentworth, someone you'll no doubt be hearing a lot more about in Season 2 of Pax Britannica, and this was the beginning of a close, lifelong friendship between the two men. Now, Wentworth is just about to find himself on the wrong side of the Duke of Buckingham, and will spend years out in the political wilderness, but Calvert will stay loyal to him, and this will pay off for Calvert in the long run. Having won a seat representing Yorkshire, Calvert would dutifully take his place in the Commons as the King's proxy and mouthpiece, and he'd take a beating from his fellow MPs because of it. Calvert would take a beating in his personal life as well. In 1622, his beloved first wife Anne would die from complications with her 11th pregnancy. Of their 10 children, at least three would die before Calvert himself, and two more just after his own death. But a few children would live to play important roles in the history of the Maryland colony, particularly his eldest son Cecil, named after George's patron, who will become the second Baron of Baltimore and the first proprietor of the Maryland colony. There's also Leonard Calvert, who will not only become the first governor of Maryland and the boots on the ground for the Calvert regime there, he'll also have some of the most amazing hair you will ever see in the early 17th century. Seriously, go Google a picture of Leonard Calvert. He wouldn't look out of place in any early 80s metal band or driving one of those customized vans with a wizard painted on the side of it. All this centuries before the invention of Aquanet, he is truly one of Maryland's underappreciated cultural treasures. 
Anyway, to add to Calvert's misery, in 1623, the wheels of the Spanish match were about to come flying off in spectacular fashion. Sick of all the diplomatic dithering and red tape, Buckingham and the Prince hatch a plan to sneak over to Madrid in disguise, pop in unannounced, and just charm the pantaloons off of everyone in the Spanish court. Of course, it's a total fiasco. By the time the humiliated pair manage to make their way back to England, they are dead set against the Spanish. They'd twist James's arm into calling a new parliament in 1624, and with the help of the pro-war, anti-Spanish faction, they'd effectively snatch the wheel of foreign policy out of the king's hands, for a few months at least. It didn't take Calvert long to realize his career was toast. He was still technically Secretary of State, but he was out of the loop and relegated to babysitting angry Spanish diplomats. He would serve as an MP in the Parliament of 1624, but he'd mostly act real quiet and try not to look like the face of years of hated foreign policy. From this vantage point, he'd watch his Spanish party compatriots get taken down one by one. Lord Digby would get thrown under the bus for the fiasco in Madrid. Lionel Cranfield would be impeached. And Calvert's close friend and associate, Francis Coddington, will plummet from favor. So George Calvert knew he had to get out now, before he made himself the next target. Citing poor health, he would arrange the sale of his office in late 1624. And around that same time, we get the first written hints that Calvert had converted to Roman Catholicism. Again, it's all a bit of a historical debate on whether he was secretly Catholic all along and just felt like he no longer had to hide it, or whether he had genuinely conformed to the Church of England all these years until the calamities befalling him led to an agonizing reappraisal of his life and his soul. Either way, from this point on, he would not waver from his faith in the Roman Church, but he would have to develop some pragmatic solutions to operating within a rabidly anti-Catholic English society. So far, we've heard about George Calvert, the mild-mannered bureaucrat and royal stooge. But obviously, there's more to the story, or I wouldn't be here blathering at you. All along, there was another side to the man. The rambling, gambling George Calvert. The dreamer, the schemer, who'd risk it all to achieve his crazy goals. George Calvert, the colonizer. Like many people at the time, he was bewitched by the New World mania that was sweeping England and the seemingly limitless opportunities for wealth and prestige that could be attained through the new global commerce and colonization. He'd caught the fever early on, investing in the Virginia Company way back in 1609, and he'd make a profitable investment in the East India Company a few years later. Depending on what source you read, he potentially had an interest in just about every English colonial venture going. The true basis of wealth, security, and status at this time was land a fact that would have been keenly felt by the son of landless gentry. And like everyone else seeking security and upward mobility, Calvert would spend his career collecting as much property as possible. Through grants from the king and outright purchase, he would acquire two manors in his birthplace of Yorkshire. Despite the fact that he'd lived most of his life in London, it's the social and legal structure of the Yorkshire manor that Calvert would export to his overseas colonies and estates. And the adoption of this manorial system helps explain two important and seemingly contradictory aspects of Maryland. On the one hand, there is an autocratic, hierarchical, almost quasi-feudal social structure, with the benevolent lord at the top of the social pyramid offering protection and security to the loyal servants, craftsmen, and tenants beneath him, who in turn toil away happily to make the manor as productive as possible, and everybody benefits. That's the ideal, anyway. But the manorial system would also become one of Calvert's pragmatic solutions for facilitating a sort of de facto religious freedom. Manors were part of the reason a Catholic underground was able to hold on as long as it did in the north of England. There's usually a physical distance between the manor lord and the central government. A manor lord usually has enough money to afford recusancy fines, and they may even have a noble title that insulates them from prosecution. The manor is a self-reliant, self-contained, insular, and cellular society. They even had their own court systems, so it was much easier to practice a forbidden faith there, far away from prying eyes. Soon enough, Calvert's land acquisitions would go beyond the shores of England. Over in County Longford, Ireland, King James would exercise a dodgy, centuries-old claim to the lands of the O'Farrells, and then divvy up the loot as patronage to his loyal servants. Sir George Calvert would be the recipient of two estates there, one of which was called Baltimore, and that will become important later. 
Meanwhile, in 1620, a sea captain named Richard Whitbourne would pen a new book called A Discovery and Discourse of Newfoundland. His book, like so many early tracks about the New World, was essentially advertising for investment capital. He raves about the fertility of Newfoundland soil, the mildness of its winters, the abundance of fish and game, and its mermaids. Yes, he claims to have seen a mermaid in St. John's Harbor. Now, fishermen from all over Western Europe had been setting up seasonal, semi-permanent settlements in Newfoundland for decades by this point. But Whitbourne hoped for the full backing of the English crown to make a serious attempt at colonization and developing the island's resources, with himself playing a governing role, of course. Whitbourne, book in hand, would approach the King's Privy Council and make his pitch. The crown was way too broke to invest in the scheme, but a few members of the council took the bait and invested their own private money, one of which would be Sir George Calvert, who purchased a swath of land along the southern shore of Newfoundland's Avalon Peninsula. And thus was born the Avalon Colony, which will end up being an experimental dry run for Maryland, where some hard lessons would be learned. Calvert would hire his own sea captain, Edward Wynne, to act as governor, and between the years 1621 and 1624, he would personally finance the building of a large stone house, some modest fortifications, and presumably the other buildings, livestock, and materials needed to start a fully working manor in Newfoundland. Only a few letters survive written from Wynne to Calvert, but they're almost entirely optimistic and positive. Everything's coming along great. Everything's going way better than expected. Send more money, supplies, and people. With nothing but positive news coming back, Calvert invested more and more, and he'd send somewhere between 30 or 40 colonists to Avalon over this time period. While Calvert might seem almost timidly cautious at court, he could be downright ferocious when protecting his personal colonial interests. During the Parliament of 1621, he'd lead the attack against those MPs who wanted to make Newfoundland's waters and shores into a commons for English fishermen. He'd make deals with known pirates, offering a pardon in return for the pirates protecting his colony. And at the height of his powers in 1623, Calvert even tried to lay legal claim to the entire island of Newfoundland. King James wasn't going to allow that, but he did grant Calvert a royal charter officially creating the province of Avalon. And as proprietor of the colony, the charter granted Calvert extraordinary powers. The Avalon Charter of 1623 and the Maryland Charter of 1632 are virtually identical, so I'd like to take a few minutes to describe the weird quasi-feudal constitution on which the Maryland colony would be based. Maryland would be a proprietary colony, meaning it was granted by the king to an individual, as opposed to a joint stock colony run by companies, or a crown colony run directly by a royal council. The Lord Proprietor is the supreme ruler of their colony, though they are ultimately subject to the king and technically English law. Avalon, and later Maryland, will take this even further. Their charters will contain a Bishop of Durham clause, which establishes them as a palatinate. And a palatinate is an old medieval construct. Historically, the county's palatine were fiefdoms set up in lawless border areas whose lords were granted king-like levels of power and autonomy over their jurisdiction. These were the front lines of any border disputes, and they needed the leeway to react quickly to any raids or incursions without waiting for the king. And it was a tough gig. Granting all this power incentivized the lords to do the job and privatized all of the costs. A few of these counties had existed in England since the Norman Conquest, the most famous being the Bishopric of Durham on the border of Scotland. By the reign of Henry VIII, England is centralizing, and the counties palatine are all but stripped of their independence. But the Stuart kings would help resurrect and repurpose the concept to be used on their new colonial borderlands. The Maryland Charter grants the Lord Proprietor any and all powers the Bishop of Durham ever had. And to give you a flavor of what this entails, Here's a quote from William H. Brown's George Calvert and Cecilius Calvert that sums it up nicely. Quote, It invested the proprietary and his lineal descendants forever with the perpetual and hereditary ownership of the soil and the waters, empowered him to make peace or war, to suppress insurrection or sedition, to call out, arm, and command the militia, and to declare martial law, to levy rents, taxes, dues, and tolls, to convert titles and dignities, to erect towns, boroughs, and cities, to erect and found churches and cause them to be consecrated, to make laws, public or private, with the advice and consent of the freemen, 
and necessary ordinances not affecting life, limb, or property without that consent. To establish courts of justice and appoint magistrates, judges, and other civil officers, and to execute the laws, even to the extent of taking life. Ritz ran in his name, and there's no appeal from his courts, nor did the laws enacted in his assembly require any confirmation from king or parliament. End quote. And just in case you think I'm tossing about terms like quasi-feudal willy-nilly, each charter would require a symbolic, almost romanticized show of fealty from the lord proprietor to his king. The Avalon Charter stipulated that should the king ever visit the colony, he was to be presented with the gift of a white horse. As it turns out, no king would visit Newfoundland until 1939, and I'm not sure where 30 to 40 scurvy-ridden colonists are supposed to scrounge up a white horse, but it's symbolic. In return for the rights granted in the Maryland Charter, Lord Baltimore was required to make an annual payment of two Indian arrows to the king. And these payments were made for some years. Receipts for them exist in the Calvert Papers. Well, that's cheap as chips, you might say. But its purpose was as a show of submission, to show the true hierarchical relationship between a lord and his king. Proprietary colonies would be popular with the Stuart kings. It's a cheap form of patronage that seeds the British Empire with a very royalist social model, run by retainers who were loyal directly to the king. Particularly after the Restoration, proprietary colonies would proliferate, and more and more charters would contain things like Bishop of Durham clauses. But Avalon and Maryland were two of the earliest in North America. And what's really remarkable is that these vast powers were granted to a known Catholic. Far from being disgraced after stepping down as Secretary of State, Calvert was risen into the Irish peerage by King James. In early 1625, Sir George Calvert was created the first Baron of Baltimore, and his peerage name is generally believed to have come from his estate in County Longford, not from the fishing village of Baltimore way down in County Cork. He also retained his place in the King's Privy Council. One of Lord Baltimore's first actions would be to get the religious restrictions lifted off of his Irish estates. He then set about organizing a voyage to Avalon to install a Catholic knight and soldier of fortune named Sir Arthur Aston as the new governor there. And for you students of Irish history, this is the father of the more famous Sir Arthur Aston, who gets beaten to death with his own wooden leg at Drogheda. The death of King James in March 1625 would dampen Calvert's plans somewhat. Catholics of any rank were barred from attending King James's funeral, and Calvert would lose his place in the Privy Council after politely declining to give an oath of supremacy to King Charles. On the matter of oaths, moderate English Catholics like Sir George Calvert were fine giving a modified version of the Oath of Allegiance. They had no problem swearing allegiance to the king as their temporal lord. Oaths of supremacy, which declared the king as the head of the church, well, even moderate Catholics couldn't really wiggle around that. The head of the church was the Pope. Calvert couldn't give an oath of supremacy, not if he wanted to stay true to his religious principles, and not if he wanted to maintain any street cred with the community of English and Irish Catholics he was now immersing himself in. For his part, King Charles took it well and commended Calvert for his honesty. Then the new king proceeded to confirm Calvert's charters and grants, as well as to grant him and his family passage into Ireland. Charles would even provide Calvert with a ship to ferry Sir Arthur Aston over to Avalon, under the stipulation that Acid would bring back some elks and some hawks for the king. And all this is fairly extraordinary. Not only is this happening during an outbreak of the plague when travel was on lockdown, the king is allowing a notoriously pro-Spanish Catholic lord proprietor to install a Catholic governor in a far-off colony, all while England is ramping up for war with Spain. I think this underscores the trust the crown had for Calvert despite his conversion. And Charles could probably do the math. Here's a loyal subject spending thousands of pounds sterling of his own money in an effort to expand the king's domains overseas. So in mid-1625, Sir Arthur Asson would set sail for Avalon, while Calvert and his family crossed over into Ireland. When Sir George Calvert reappears in the historical record in September of the same year, he has purchased land in County Wexford and settled down with a new wife, Joan, the First Lady Baltimore. Calvert would spend the next couple of years in County Wexford, putting down roots, building up his estates, and marrying off daughters into the local Catholic gentry and lesser nobility. Residing in Ireland put him at arm's length from the political turmoil going on in England between the Crown and the Parliament. 
but Calvert would maintain his old role as a loyal pair of eyes and ears for the king, and he was still reporting to Buckingham on topics such as Charles' scheme to raise an army in Ireland. Meanwhile, the prospects for the Avalon colony becoming a sanctuary for Catholics was beginning to take on a life of its own. Before he'd left for Ireland, Calvert had sought the help of a Father Simon Stock in attaining the services of a Catholic priest willing to go to Newfoundland with Sir Arthur Aston. Stock was a member of the Order of Discalced Carmelite Priests, who currently resided in the Spanish Embassy in London. He had been Spanish Ambassador Gondomar's confessor, and Calvert likely met Stock via these Spanish diplomatic circles. Father Simon harbored grand ambitions of founding his own Carmelite school on the continent, and he latched onto Avalon as a project that would get him noticed by higher-ups in the church. Well, he got nowhere among the leadership of his own order, so he decided to go over their heads and write directly to Rome. Just a few years earlier, the Pope had created an organization known as the Propaganda Fide. It was meant as a sort of central intelligence hub, gathering as much information as possible on those areas of the world where the Roman church was struggling to gain a foothold. So when they start getting letters from a monk in London about the dire need to send priests to Newfoundland now before all North America is lost to the heathens, the Propaganda Fide stood up and took notice. And soon, Stock's letters about Calvert's little colony are being read to His Holiness Pope Urban VIII himself. Faster than you can say ten Hail Marys, Propaganda commands the head of the Carmelite order to smuggle two priests into England and to get them on that ship to Avalon. The Carmelite order would dispatch two priests to England, but they drag their feet and take months to arrive. By that time, Aston had already sailed. What's worse, these priests weren't there to save souls in Newfoundland, they were there to replace Simon Stock as the head of the Carmelite mission in England. All the while, Stock was being undermined by his own order, who were now writing their own letters to propaganda, downplaying the necessity and the viability of sending priests to Avalon. But just to show they weren't standing in the way of the Pope's wishes, they offered up the perfect candidate to be sent there, Father Simon Stock. This was his baby, who better to go? Stock would refuse. He was more of an idea guy, I guess. But having been outmaneuvered, he'd gradually lose interest in Avalon. So just finding a Catholic priest willing to go to a far-off English colony was going to be an issue. And there's a history to this being a problem. So George Calvert wasn't the first guy to think of establishing an English colony for Catholics. It's not even the first time Newfoundland was picked as the location. Some Catholic nobles began floating around capital to create one during the reign of Elizabeth. But she put an end to it the second she found out about it. Later attempts would be kiboshed not by English Protestants, but by church authorities in Rome. They felt risky, pie-in-the-sky colonial adventures took important resources away from the more important mission of converting England back to Catholicism. But after decades of failure and the counterproductive backlashes caused by the Spanish Armada and the gunpowder plot, the idea that England could be swung back to the old religion looked more and more like a pipe dream. Many English Catholics began to see toleration as a more realistic and achievable goal. Moderate Catholics wanted to prove they were loyal Englishmen first and foremost, ones who were just trying to carve out a space where they could worship freely, even if it required them to be discreet and low-key about that worship. Sir George Calvert is the embodiment of this reserved approach, so it's ironic that fate would soon draw him into an alliance with the most hardcore Catholic faction operating in England or anywhere else. I mean, of course, the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits. That's a few years in the future, however. Back in early 1627, fate would embroil Calvert in more temporal concerns. He would receive a summons from Buckingham, pulling him out of his retirement in Ireland and hurling him back into the intrigues of court in England. The war with Spain was going poorly, to say the least. And England were on the cusp of starting a new war with their supposed allies in this whole affair, France. Buckingham wanted to end the war with Spain, and he wanted to do it discreetly. Suddenly, Calvert's years of dealing with Spanish diplomacy were seen as a good thing. Before he knew it, he was being whisked along in a carriage with Buckingham to attend a meeting of the minds on how to extricate themselves from this conflict. As for peace with Spain, nothing would come of it. The war drags on for three more years. But this wouldn't be a wasted trip for Calvert. Spending a few months back in the orbit of the king and the duke allows Calvert access to patronage. In this case, a thousand-pound-a-year stipend from a silk monopoly. And he was also able to expedite a new voyage to Avalon, despite most ships in England being reserved for the war effort. Sir Arthur Aston returned to England in 1626 after having wintered in Avalon. 
Initially, he intended to return to Calvert's colony, but chose instead to accompany the Duke of Buckingham on his glorious expedition to the Ile de Ré. Unfortunately for Aston, he'd perish there, along with thousands of other Englishmen. So at this point, Calvert was determined to go himself to Avalon. He had known for years that his investments weren't reaping the rewards he had been promised. And for his colonial endeavors to succeed, they needed his personal attention. It's a fairly rare phenomenon that proprietors actually go to live in their own colonies, partly because it's so uncomfortable and dangerous. Calvert would admit as much in a letter to his BFF, Thomas Wentworth. He seemed very nervous about the whole thing, but he declared he'd rather be considered a fool for risking his neck in an effort to save his investment than be considered a fool for not even trying. In the same letter, Calvert also begs Wentworth to just pay King Charles's forced loan for Pete's sake. You're playing right into your enemy's hands. Wentworth didn't take the advice, and he was jailed shortly afterwards. In June 1627, Lord Baltimore would arrive at Avalon's primary settlement, Fairyland, laying eyes for the very first time on his very own province. A papal envoy in Brussels would later write a third-hand account of how Calvert arrived that summer to find the colony empty, so it had been abandoned, but he could still make use of the large stone manor house that had been built for him back in 1622. He used it as a headquarters and spent the next few months trying to assess for himself the true viability of his colony. When he returned to England in late 1627, another voyage to Avalon was immediately put into motion. This time, Sir George Calvert was going all in. This time, he was moving to his manor house at Fairyland and bringing most of his family with him. Calvert would also be bringing a larger contingent of colonists this time, the numbers are super soupy and depend on the source, but it seems to be in the 50 to 100 person range, with maybe 30 to 40 of the colonists being Catholics. He had also finally managed to find two secular Catholic priests willing to bring the proper spiritual guidance to the new colony. Whether Calvert was genuinely optimistic about Avalon's prospects, or whether this was a desperate gamble to salvage something from a project he had dumped half his fortune into, we can only speculate. But we know from Calvert's letters to Charles, Buckingham, and Coddington that once he and the colonists arrived in Newfoundland, just about everything would go wrong. By 1628, France and England were at war, and France had their own claims on Newfoundland. The province of Avalon would soon receive the unwanted attention of French privateers, who had commenced the seizing English fishing vessels and destroying camps on shore. Lord Baltimore would send his son Leonard at the head of an expedition to give chase to these sea raiders. Ah, Leonard... Leonard is the man of action in the Calvert family, the Cavalier. Picture him now on the deck of his ship, his keen eyes scanning the horizon for enemy sails, as tendrils of his fabulous hair flow freely on a salty westward wind. Iron Maiden's sun and steel playing in the background. Leonard, with a little help from the sea captains and their men, would drive off the French interlopers, rescue some English ships that had been seized, and then fall upon some French fishing vessels in reprisal. Leonard would deliver these French prizes back to his king in England. And he'd also try to land a backdated letter of mark and reprisal because he technically didn't have the legal license to go privateering like he had, and he wanted the Calverts to get their share of the prize money. Sounds like a good day of work for the Calverts. But Sir George could only see the costs. He wrote glumly about having to feed 60 or so French prisoners, who may have actually outnumbered the colonists at that point. And there was the chilling realization that, without a serious naval presence in Newfoundland, no English settlement was safe from future raids. Years of work could be burned down in an afternoon. Despite doing his duty and protecting the coastline, Calvert would get no respect from the local English fishermen, and he would complain bitterly about how rude and quarrelsome they were. Well, to be fair to the fishermen, they were used to Newfoundland's resources being a commons and a free-for-all. Now this Lord Fancy Pants arrives and he's roping off all the land and demanding taxes and fees to cut down his lumber or salt fish on his shores. And the guy's a bloody Catholic to boot. Outrageous. Which brings us to religion. We all knew that was going to be an issue, didn't we? All of the English settlements on Newfoundland, including Calvert's, are predominantly Protestant. Since the days when Calvert himself was a Protestant, he had sent Protestant ministers to Avalon to look after the flock. When he arrives with two Catholic priests in 1628, there's already a Protestant preacher in the area, a Reverend Erasmus Sturton, and things go about as well as you can imagine. Now, Calvert does the Calvert thing when it comes to religion. He tries to be fair and walk the tightrope over the middle ground, 
and generally pretend that we can all just get along despite our differences. And by doing so, he manages to piss everybody off. Reverend Sturton kicks up such a fuss about Catholic Mass being performed out in the open that Calvert has to banish him from the colony. The Reverend returns to England and continues railing against Calvert and the Catholics of Avalon, even claiming that the children of Protestants are being converted against their will. Meanwhile in Rome, the Propaganda Fide is receiving alarming reports, presumably from irate Catholics, that Calvert is allowing Protestants to hold services in one side of his house while Catholics worship in the other. Allowing heretics to worship in the same building is expressly against the laws of the church at this point. Toleration is not a popular concept in 1628, nor will it be a popular concept in 1634, when Maryland is first settled. The final nail in the Avalon dream, however, will come in the form of winter, which, as Calvert finds out, lasts half the year in Newfoundland. His grand manor house became a hospital as half the colony went down with illness, thought now to be scurvy or some form of malnutrition, and at least nine or ten colonists would die. The brutal winter of 1628-1629 had finally relieved Calvert of any remaining illusions. He had gambled on Avalon, and he'd lost. Cecil Calvert will later claim his father squandered twenty to 25,000 pounds trying to colonize Newfoundland. Not as dear a price as the 50,000 pounds Sir Walter Raleigh would lose on his colonial boondoggles, but it's still a ruinous sum for someone of Calvert's means. The loss of time, effort, and money was bad enough. The loss of face could be worse. In a letter to Wentworth, Calvert worries about the last that will be had at his expense back at court. And what of the king? Calvert had promised to expand the crown's domains and bring honor to King Charles, and he had failed. The fact that Calvert could operate with impunity within the English system, despite his Catholicism, hinged heavily on the prestige and value he retained in the eyes of his king. He wrote an apologetic letter to his sovereign and asked for just one more chance to roll the dice, this time in Virginia, where Calvert was hoping to raise tobacco. After sending their kids back to England and Ireland, Lord and Lady Baltimore departed Avalon and headed for the warmer climes of the Virginia colony. In their haste to leave before another winter trapped them in Newfoundland, they would miss the reply letter from their king, wherein Charles would suggest that maybe Calvert wasn't cut out for this whole colonization business. As for his honor and station in England, he had nothing to worry about. Just come on home, George. You'll be fine. I'll take care of you. Lord Baltimore's time in Avalon also coincided with a sea change in the power dynamics of the English court. On August 23, 1628, the Duke of Buckingham was murdered. And ironically, Calvert's last letter to Buckingham was dated a few days after the Duke had been killed. One side effect of the Duke's assassination was that suddenly all of this royal patronage was freed up, and men that the Duke had been keeping down were free to rise. Two of the greatest beneficiaries of the Duke's misfortune would be Thomas Wentworth and Francis Coddington. Sir George Calvert suddenly had two very close friends in the highest echelons of court, and he was going to need them, because he was about to make a whole bunch of enemies. Lord and Lady Baltimore arrived in Virginia in late September of 1629. Despite the novelty of such a distinguished man of the peerage arriving in such a far-flung dominion, Calvert's reception would be less than auspicious. He immediately faced a wall of barely disguised hostility, as well as some overt hostility, too, in the case of one Virginian who blocked Calvert's path in the street and threatened him with violence. What was up? Well, there's some history there. Back in 1624, after years of virtual bankruptcy and a Powhatan massacre that killed hundreds of settlers, King James revoked the Virginia Company's charter. Virginia would now be a royal colony run by a royally appointed Council for Virginia. Sir George Calvert, who was then Secretary of State, was very involved in this process. The Virginia colony is riven with factions, those who were hitched to the old Virginia company, as well as those who never wanted to see the company resume control over the colony. There's factions within these factions, and they're all represented by powerful men on both sides of the Atlantic. One thing most of them had in common, though, was a resentment for the arbitrary power of the Royal Council for Virginia. And suddenly, one of its architects shows up unannounced in Jamestown. There was a lot at stake here. The old Virginia Company grant included half the east coast of North America. Even though that charter had been revoked, many Virginians still assumed they had some legal right to everything from modern Pennsylvania down to Georgia. Enter Lord Baltimore, who openly expresses his desire to plant and dwell somewhere within those boundaries. 
If Calvert were allowed to stay within the borders of the Virginia colony proper, he would instantly represent a new and powerful faction with close personal connections to the Royal Council. If he were granted his own charter to the unsettled lands just north or south of Virginia, he would represent a challenge to the claims some powerful Virginians felt they already had over these territories. One of these powerful Virginians will come to haunt the nightmares of the Calvert family for decades and will wage a tenacious and at times bloody personal war against them. And that starts here in the fall of 1629. His name is William Claiborne, and his faction currently holds sway over the levers of power in Virginia. They decide immediately that Lord Baltimore has to go, and they have a very easy method in which to accomplish this. They'll just force him to give oaths of allegiance and supremacy. As we know, for Calvert, the oath of allegiance is doable. The oath of supremacy, not so much. So he's unceremoniously ordered to leave Virginia at the earliest opportunity. Lady Baltimore, however, will be staying in Virginia for the time being. No specific reason is given for this. Either Calvert thought he'd be right back with a letter from the king telling Virginia's governor to stuff it, or perhaps she was sick or with child and couldn't make the voyage at this point. Upon returning to England, Calvert would meet with King Charles on the subject of getting a new charter granted to him, this time in some unsettled portion of the old Virginia territory. The king ultimately accepted this proposal, but he would specifically forbid Calvert from leaving England to personally oversee settlement. Charles would claim that he was concerned about Calvert's health, but it's just as likely the king didn't want Calvert stirring up any more Virginian hornet's nests. Well, it was all a bit late for that. William Claiborne knew what Calvert was up to and traveled to England himself to begin the process of fighting the new Calvert Grant every step of the way. The next couple of years were going to be some hard ones for our protagonist. Calvert had squandered most of his fortune on Avalon. Most of the rest of his cash and property had been doled out to support his many children. His new charter was immediately bogged down in litigation. But tragedy had more in store for Calvert. He had managed to get the use of a ship to go and fetch his wife and the rest of his possessions from Virginia. On the return trip, just off the coast of England or Ireland, sources differ, the ship foundered. Joan Calvert, the First Lady Baltimore, and any children she may have had with her at the time, drowned. And Calvert's collection of silver plate, which was the way you stored your portable wealth at the time, sank to the bottom. He was emotionally and financially ruined. Friends of his passed letters around, worrying about his mental and physical health, and the sums of money he was borrowing that he couldn't pay back. Calvert was depending on this new colonial grant to save his reputation and his fortunes and he was depending on his friends and his king to advance his cause in court. Without the help of Thomas Wentworth and Francis Coddington, the new charter would have been smothered by the Virginians. Without the goodwill of the king, Calvert could never have been granted the sweeping authority required to protect Catholics from English law. He knew who buttered his bread, and in 1631 he'd hoist the royalist flag high, penning a pamphlet that attacked both the religious and political presumptions of Puritans and that defended King James's pro-Spanish policy back in the early 1620s. England and Spain had finally concluded peace in 1630, and the Spanish party in England were once again on the rise. Had George Calvert survived to see the English Civil Wars, there's little doubt which side he would have been on. He would also get himself involved in a controversy that was raging in the English Catholic underground. There had long been jurisdictional disputes between the secular clergy, who represented the Catholic Church hierarchy, and the regular clergy, who represented the monastic orders like the Carmelites, Franciscans, or the Jesuits. It was the regular clergy who had had the most success in keeping Catholicism alive in England. They had attached themselves to the Catholic gentry and nobility who could afford to house and hide the priests from the authorities. The secular clergy had long been jealous of this arrangement. They felt themselves the legitimate dispensers of the sacraments, and they had been shriveling on the vine in England for some time. This would all be brought to a head between the years 1625 and 1631, after Archpriest Richard Smith begins trying to style himself as a genuine Catholic bishop in England. Smith would assert that no Catholic priest could administer the sacraments in England without his approval, and that it was he who would designate which priests the English laity were supposed to support. In other words, they would now be supporting the secular priests and doing what he said. This caused an immediate rift among the Catholic laity in England. Most actually sided with Smith and the secular clergy. It was a question of legitimacy. There's no legal Catholic church in England. 
and there had long been the apprehension amongst lay Catholics that maybe the sacraments being administered by monks of the regular orders weren't necessarily legit. And if they weren't legit in the eyes of the church, were they legit in the eyes of God? The Pope had assigned Smith to England. Smith says there's a new sheriff in town and everybody needs to fall in. Where's the argument? And many lay Catholics liked the idea of a bishop. One guy who could come in and end all the clerical squabbling. But other English Catholics, Sir George Calvert among them, thought this was all a terrible idea. Again, a Catholic church in England is very illegal. And while the early Stuart kings often get painted by their enemies as being pro-Catholic, it's really nothing like that. Lay Catholics were political poker chips. If King Charles is trying to get along with France or Spain, he might ease up on Catholics. Two weeks later, when he's trying to impress Protestants in Parliament, or when he needs a quick source of income, he clamps down on Catholics and raises recusancy fines. Meanwhile, the Catholic clergy in England were always a target. Both James and Charles viewed them as agents of Rome and purveyors of a shadow government that represented a direct threat to their kingly authority. Lay Catholics who housed and protected these priests were risking their freedom and their fortunes. And they were leery of having such decisions being made by some guy who didn't have to pay the price. Furthermore, no bishop appointed by Rome was going to last five seconds in England. He would become an instant lightning rod for Protestant repression. And he would cause the king to question the loyalty of his Catholic subjects. Loyalty was Calvert's currency. Catholics needed the king. Sure, he could be repressive, but he was a way better option than those Puritan nutjobs in Parliament. After his conversion, Calvert avoided associating directly with the Jesuit order. They were just too hardcore, too much of a boogeyman for English Protestants, and they aroused too much suspicion in the king. But as the squabble between the secular and regular factions heated up, the Jesuits began to look like the less dangerous option to Calvert. Yes, their doctrine was hardcore, but at least they were willing to accept the legal realities that English Catholics lived under. Richard Smith and the seculars couldn't grasp this, and they threatened to bring the hammer down on everybody. Of course, it didn't hurt that the Jesuits were also a very rich and very powerful order, full of highly motivated and highly trained go-getters. They were like the Green Berets of missionary work. They had a ton of experience working in rugged, dangerous locations worldwide, and the means with which to pull it off. Calvert had been in contact with the order as early as 1628, but an alliance between them would become more overt in 1630 when Calvert began working directly with a Jesuit priest named Andrew White. Father White and the Jesuits would have a major impact on making the Maryland colony a reality going forward. Ultimately, Calvert and the regular clergy would win their battle with the would-be bishop, Richard Smith. Smith had caused a lot of friction in England and brought a lot of unwanted attention from the English government. Eventually, an irritated pope made it clear to Smith that he would not back him to the full extent of his ambitions and Smith would depart England for France in 1631 to join the household of Cardinal Richelieu. After a hard slog, Calvert was also seeing progress in the legal battle for his new charter. At the last minute, he was forced to change the location of his grant. His new colony was originally supposed to be located south of the James River in Virginia, but Claiborne and company screened bloody murder that they were building sugar plantations there, so Calvert agreed to move to a less coveted area north of the Potomac. The Virginians still complained bitterly, but this time the location stuck. All that was left was the name the new colony. Something meaningful, something timeless, something that just rolls off the tongue. And Calvert had the perfect name for his new province across the ocean. Crescentia, land of crescents. It's an obsolete term meaning growth or expansion. That's what Calvert wanted to call it anyway, but he was an astute enough courtier to leave that part of the charter blank and let the king have a go at it. And eventually, they would decide on Terra Mariae, or Maryland, in honor of King Charles's French Catholic wife, Queen Henrietta Maria. By April of 1632, the Maryland Charter was all but complete, granting Sir George Calvert all of the same sweeping powers and privileges that the Avalon Charter had granted him in Newfoundland. It would be his very own Palatinate on the Potomac. It just had to be rubber-stamped by a privy council full of Calvert's friends, and it was his. And just weeks before reaching that finishing line, Calvert died. He was 52 years old, and his body was broken by the stresses and strains of his life. The baton would be passed to George's first son and heir, Cecil Calvert, who was now the second baron of Baltimore. 
It was he who was granted the Maryland Charter and who would reign as the first proprietor of the Maryland colony. There was still a lot of heavy lifting to do to make Maryland a reality. And Cecil didn't have the years of experience in government or the phone book full of powerful personal connections that his father had. But he manages to pull it off, and he manages to learn from a few of his father's mistakes. Maryland, unlike Avalon, will not just be a Calvert affair. Cecil realized he needed to spread the risk. He'd bring on board men like Thomas Cornwallis, Robert Winter, Jerome Hawley, and John Luger, and many others, who would not only invest and plant in the colony, but would actively advertise and recruit for it. The ideal of Maryland would be packaged and sold, mainly to the second sons of the gentry and lesser nobility. They couldn't inherit their family land in England, but they could buy large expanses of it in Maryland for cheap. In short, Cecil Calvert was trying to export an upscale version of the English countryside to North America. In order to populate the colony as quickly as possible, and supply the manors with the requisite laborers and craftsmen, Maryland would adopt the headright system. This incentivized investors to bring with them as many servants and laborers as they could afford. The more colonists you helped send to Maryland, the more land you would be given there. So if we stick with the notion of Maryland being quasi-feudal, the quasi-serfs would be the many endangered servants who would make up the labor force of the colony in its first few decades. For a set number of years, these servants would remain in bondage to those who had paid their way to the colony. And at the end of their term of service, they'd be provided with a little land of their own. Assuming they lived that long. Maryland's climate and diseases are going to just kill the hell out of its settlers. As for religion, there was an overtly missionary flavor to the stated goals of the colony, but nothing specifically Catholic. Instead, it ambiguously focused on bringing Christianity to the savages. Their term, not mine. This noble quest to save the natives from themselves was really played up, both in the charter and in the advertising for Maryland. Because while it might seem like a conceited and destructive cultural paternalism to us today, it was the morally unassailable height of selfless philanthropy at the time, and it was good PR. At the very least, I guess you could say it tacitly admits that people were already living in the Maryland Territory. People had been moving in and out of the area for thousands of years. There was actually a fairly complex Native American geopolitical landscape within the arbitrary boundaries of the Charter. There were many Algonquin-speaking tribes along the shores and rivers of the Chesapeake. Remnants of the Powhatan Confederacy were being pushed into the region by the expansion of the Virginians. And moving down from the north, there were the Susquehannock, a tribe with a fearsome reputation, not only among the European settlers, but among the other native groups. Maryland's colonizers knew very little about any of this, apart from a few scraps of info from Virginian sources, like the writings of John Smith. While they expounded the lofty goal of converting to Indians, the interaction with the natives that Cecil was really excited about was trade, particularly the fur trade. He was literally banking on it being a viable source of revenue for the proprietorship. Advertising Maryland as a haven for Catholics was necessarily kept selective and circumspect. Demographic and political realities virtually assured that the majority of settlers traveling to Maryland would be Protestant. The last thing Cecil Calvert wanted to do was to alienate or aggravate these people on religious grounds. They were necessary not only for his colony's economic success, but they provided cover from those who would inevitably claim that Maryland was a colony of Rome and not England. Cecil would adopt his father's reserved, non-confrontational approach to religion. For years in Maryland, the official Calvert proprietary line would be first and foremost, pretend religion isn't an issue. Don't shine a light on it, de-escalate. And if there's a legal barrier, try to flow gently around it. Father Andrew White and the Jesuits would be major investors and advertisers for the colony. They would also be among the first and most successful colonists there. But Calvert's government would not officially recognize or promote the Jesuit order or any of their agendas within Maryland's borders. Instead, the Jesuit priests were considered to be individual landed gentlemen, just like anybody else. The Maryland Charter only allowed the proprietor to build and consecrate Anglican churches. So Cecil's loophole would be to create a sort of de facto separation of church and state. His government just wouldn't build any churches. It was left to private individuals to do that, whether they be Protestants or landed gentlemen who just happened to be Jesuit priests. Cecil gave written instructions to the Catholic colonists first voyaging to Maryland to keep Catholic worship on the DL. Do nothing to incite the Protestants. 
The Maryland colony would be known for its religious toleration, but it was toleration in a very intolerant 17th century context. An explicitly warm and fuzzy ethos of live and let live as long as you don't hurt anybody will have to wait for the Rhode Island and Providence plantations, and even they didn't actually have any Catholics to be tolerant to. There was a popular English fear and hatred towards Catholics, and English law was weaponized against them. This forced the Calverts to walk a very delicate line. In modern America, freedom of conscience goes hand-in-hand with freedom of speech. It was the opposite in Maryland. Their laws of toleration explicitly banned defaming anyone's religion, which in practice meant Catholics could not say anything bad about Protestantism or the Church of England, or else they would be punished by their mostly Catholic government. There was no way the Calvert government were going to go after Protestants talking smack about the Pope, That was a national pastime in Protestant England, and Cecil wasn't about to give the mother country and his sister colonies any religious pretext in which to be outraged and pull the plug on his hard-won charter. None of this really mollified Calvert's enemies. The closer Cecil came to sending his first boatload of settlers overseas, the more fear-mongering there was about a colony of papist traitors who were going to hoist a Spanish flag the second they landed in the New World. It had been Cecil's intention all along to, like his father, travel himself to his colony. But the sustained legal attacks against his grant made this impossible. He had to stay in England and fight for Maryland's interests. This, too, would have major ramifications for the Maryland colony, because while technically his word was tantamount to law in Maryland, an ocean would separate him from the true levers of power there. Instead, he would have to rely on his brother Leonard, now officially the governor of the Maryland colony, to enact his will on the ground and finally make their father's crazy colonial dreams a reality. I hope that by relating the story of Sir George Calvert, I have shown what a long, winding, difficult road it was for history to wind up with Maryland, and that I've underscored a few factors that will help make the province of Maryland weird and interesting. But today's episode, it's just the prequel. The real story begins when the rubber meets the road. In late November of 1633, two ships, the Ark and Dove, set sail with the first batch of settlers destined to create a new colony on the Chesapeake. What do the Claiborne faction of Virginia have in store for this new colony? What are the natives going to be like? Will the Lord Proprietor be able to enjoy his king-like authority in Maryland when the king's own authority in England is already in question? Will the Calvert brand of religious toleration satisfy Protestants or Catholics? Will the Jesuits play along with just acting like landed gentlemen? How will a new colony with a tobacco-based economy affect the already volatile world tobacco market? What happens to the commonwealth ideal of the manorial system when chattel slavery becomes a more viable source of labor? Well, the answer to those questions lie in future installments of Pax Britannica. But I'll give you a hint. The Maryland colony is just a little over a decade away from a period in our history known as the plundering time, and you're not going to want to miss that. If you're interested in researching this subject yourself, check out John D. Krugler's English and Catholic, The Lord's Baltimore in the 17th Century. There's no better book out there on the Calverts. If you want the most comprehensive source on the Avalon colony and the story of Father Simon Stock, check out Luca Cagnola's The Coldest Harbor of the Land. Tobacco or Codfish, Lord Baltimore Makes His Choice, is a transcription and study of one of Calvert's letters from Avalon. It has very extensive notes in the back of the book that are worth a gander, especially if you're interested in Calvert genealogy. And for a more ecclesiastical angle, be sure to check out History of the Society of Jesus in North America by Thomas Aloysius Hughes. Well, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. Thanks again to Sam Hume for allowing me time to pontificate here on Pax Britannica. This has been Jared Books from A History of Maryland podcast, bidding you all adieu from the land of crescents. Let me recommend another history podcast on the Airwave Network. The Redacted History Podcast is a show that seeks to tell the stories that have been hidden all our lives. Hosted by historian Dr. Andre White, Redacted History covers not only relatively unknown pieces of history, but also gives new perspectives on much more famous events. 
For example, Martin Luther King Jr. was under intense surveillance by the FBI for more than a decade before he was assassinated. Everything from tales to wiretaps to threatening phone calls and attempted blackmail. Dr. White explains these events with an engaging narrative, and he places an emphasis on unsung heroes and marginalised people throughout history. There is so much history that has been obscured and hidden from us. One could say that a lot of this history has been… redacted. Listen to Redacted History every Thursday, everywhere you find good podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over 10 generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.